Hi, my name is Isaac, lead pastor at New Hope Foursquare Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our Sunday services are at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Find out more at www.inewhope.org. Well, this morning we are in uh, our series we're doing for the summer called The Creative Minority, based upon the book by John Tyson and Heather Grizzle of the same title. If you don't have the book or haven't been able to purchase it yet, it's just $5. You can buy one in the coffee bar or at the coffee bar after the service, and you'll be given a bookmark to follow along with. And it's helpful. It's short, so don't feel overwhelmed. And if you are behind in the reading, you'll be able to catch up uh, fairly quickly. But it's very helpful if it's framing a, a way for us to think about becoming Jesus people in this world um, and a creative minority is this. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together. We like that phrase, knotted together, in a living network of persons. These people are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. I just saw my Aunt Becky is here. Hi, Aunt Becky. She's right there. We both have blonde hair, so I always feel close to my Aunt Becky. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot like that. Yeah. Well, this is what we're endeavoring to create, and this book is really helpful for us to unlearn some things, to relearn some things, and to develop a framework of thinking that will help us to achieve what Jesus wants to do in the world, which is just magnificent. So this is week three, and we are talking about ethics, a distinct moral vision. Just, we don't use the word ethics very much, and so I thought I'd just give a, a brief definition of what ethics are. Ethics are moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. Um, so today we're thinking through these principles that help to shape our expectation about behavior and activity within life um, from the point of view of being a Jesus follower. So we'll jump into that here in just a moment. Well, 4th of July, a couple weeks ago, my dad and my son, Owen, who's 14, we ran together a mini marathon. Isn't that impressive? It is. I mean... It's really impressive until you know that a mini-marathon means 10% of a marathon. So, so it's 2.61 miles. You know, do, have you seen the stickers on the back of people's cars, like 13.1? That means they've run half a marathon. Or 26.2 means they've run a full marathon. I think I'll get a sticker that says 2.61 and just, yeah, yeah. Just kind of, just kind of strut my way through life, you know. <clears throat> Well, here's the beginning of the, of the race um, that we ran in. I think it was about 400 people that ran. And uh, man, it was one of the best races I've ever run. I'm, I'm not in great shape. That's not what made it great. Um, but it's mostly downhill for starters. So, you know, it's a gradual downhill from Monmouth descending into Independence. And uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, in my neighborhood where I live, there's hills everywhere. So every run is a hill workout. But the best thing about the race is that it happens right before the parade. 
that people are gathered for. People love a parade, but they're less apt to come out and cheer for, you know, a race that has mostly, you know, mediocre runners like myself and just a few elite people. People aren't like, oh, oh, we better mark off a spot right here the night before so we can see the 2.61 mile race. But if you tell them there's a parade afterwards, they get their spots. And the whole course that I'm racing along was filled with these spectators. But I learned pretty quickly on that these people do not know that they are there to cheer on a race. They think that they are there to cheer on a parade. And so they're just kind of watching, just kind of, just kind of, you know, reaching for the Cheetos. So I, I decided to make these parade spectators into race fans. That's what I decided my job was. And so as I'm running along, I'm giving people high fives and saying 4th of July. And it's like, oh, they're like, oh there's a race going on. And like, you know, I'm giving people high fives. And then I start making jokes with people. I would run up to people on the side of the road. I'd be like, so am I, am I still in the lead or not? <laughs> I, act, I asked anybody if they had a Richter scale monitor since I'm running by. <laughs> Whoa, what's going on? It's just Isaac running. Don't worry. It's just Isaac running. And, uh, but then about halfway through the race, there's a guy running next to me. And I said, what's your name? He said, Noah. I said, why am Isaac? Nice to meet you. He said, nice to meet you. We're running along. And I said, hey, everybody, my name is Isaac. And this is Noah. And now that you know our names, you got to cheer for us. These people are, Oh, hey, go Isaac. Go Noah. <laughs> I, I decided to turn the parade spectators into race fans. I was helping them to see what was really going on. The epic story of me finishing a race that was unfolding before them. Yeah. Well, this morning, as we think about this thing of ethics, a, a, an alternative or a distinct moral vision, let us consider that we are people, as we're following Christ, who are called to be on God's great race. And as we race, people who might see us are drawn into what is really going on. That our actions and the way that we, we respond in our attitudes, as informed by the vision of Jesus himself, will help people to come awake to what is really going on. That's what each of us are called to. When we understand the story we find ourselves in, we talked about this last week, a, a, an alternative story, we're more likely to be able to live out that story. We see the story, the big story, is God's restoration of the world through his son Jesus, um, that doesn't only provide the, the arc of the story or the plot of the story, but also the story of Jesus' work in the world provides for us the means through which we are to live out the story and perpetuate it. The way of Jesus is what we're being thrust into. So we talked last week a bit about the story that we're in, and we acknowledge that something that's familiar to most Christians— would be the second and third acts of a four-act play. 
And often, as Christians, as we only know this part of the story, we miss the first act, and we don't really know where the story is going, and so we live a half story or a truncated gospel. And I'll illustrate, and I'll help us. So most of us, if you've been around the Christian world at all, you hear the, about the fall, which is we are born into sin, and that we are sinners, and the world is living according to the curse, and it's really broken, and it's messed up, and it's kind of bad news, and those things are true. It's messed up and broken, and, it's, and there is bad news that is out there. But the second part of the story that we hear, which is, again, Act 3, is redemption. This is the cross of Jesus. He comes and he died and paid the penalty for our sins so that we no longer have to carry the burden of guilt and shame and condemnation. We're saved from hell. And we all say, yay. Say it with me. Yay. That's really good. And this story, though, is it's only half the story provides something that is unique within the last couple hundred years of Christianity. It begins to frame an expectation that Jesus came to save us, to get us to, to hurl us off this planet into somewhere else. It looks like this. This half the story frames an expectation that the fall has come, but Jesus has redeemed us so that we can ding, 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 get to heaven. This other place. I know. Yay! But the fuller storyline starts with act one that we fail to see. Act one is this, creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And every day that God created just by his word, he spoke into existence. And then he would look back at his handiwork. And the triune God would say, it is good. And then the next day, another aspect of creation coming forth, and now there's life that's breaking into the world, and there's green, and there's flourishing, and the sun and water are working together, and there's plants, and there's animals, and God would say, it's good. And then the pinnacle of his creation was when he made man and woman, and then he said, and it is very good. This is where the story begins. And this is what creates the fall of mankind to be such a, a brutal experience. God in his goodness and in his love created all that there is. And then man and woman were given choice and dominion and created in his image and likeness. Were given the opportunity to say yes to God or to say no. And they said no. And that's what makes the fall of man more than just a little bit off, but devastating. But God had a plan. And he sent his son Jesus to recreate. And this is why Jesus is recorded as bringing healing through his words and then healing through his actions and loving in a way like nobody had ever loved. And there's life happening around. And the Jewish onlookers who were anticipating the Messiah begin to see God is recreating. He's recreating. He's bringing life again. This is what is really going on. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, legitimizing himself as the Son of God, come to bring the restoration of all things. Now we look forward to what he is doing, the fourth act where he is restoring all things. 
Colossians says that Jesus was present at the creation of the world, and then at the end of Revelation, we see Jesus say, there will be no more tears, no more crying, all that will be no more, because he is making all things new again. This is the story that we are living into. This is heaven and earth coming together. So the full story isn't heaven over there, but actually heaven coming to earth. And so the full story is why we pray, your will be done on earth here as it is in heaven, because Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, was the beginning point, the starting point of heaven and earth coming together. And when he comes back again, it will be made all together again. Sin, shame, evil, all burned up. And what remains is his goodness and his life like it was in the beginning. That's the full story. And this storyline helps us to think through how we live, how what we anticipate, what we affirm as being counterfeit, and what we affirm as being true and being good. This story arc that is orienting to what us to what really is going on. So this is ethics. This is what ethics is, is living out what we believe to be true. So, as we immerse ourselves in the story arc, we see the things that aren't true. I'm going to point out a couple that are familiar a bit to us. We don't think of these things directly, but you'll probably catch on to what is going on. Some false ethics in our world um, that are, that are half-truths or non-truths. So, false ethics, first of all, pragmatism. Pragmatism um, is commonly used in our culture, a shorthand way of saying, I said this phrase wrong in the first service, that the end justifies the means. That's the right way to say it, right, David? Okay. The ends justify the means. So pragmatism is based upon our conception of what should be effective, and so we have a paradigm that we create about the way things should be, and pragmatism says, I'm going to ethically live in such a way that gets what I think should be done. But Jesus, as we'll see, as we'll get more into this, his life and the way that he lived wasn't pragmatic. It actually was baffling in how he walked it out. But his work actually brought about the redemption and the renewal of the world, a part of what we are living into now. But it didn't start with pragmatism. Actually, the Roman Empire was very pragmatic. So we think, contrary to pragmatism, that the Christian ethic is faithfulness over effectiveness. Faithfulness over effectiveness. The other, and there are many, but um, the other false ethic that we will spend some time with is individualism. Rampant in our culture, individualism. Um, we in our culture see the, the me or the I as being the, the highest value in life. Um, we are infatuated with ourselves and me getting what I want and me being comfortable. We've lost a lot of sense of having a communal orientation to the choices we make. We often don't think about the greater community as we're making choices. We think about me or my family. This is new within the course of history. Most of history has, has elevated the community above the individual. Ours has flipped that on its head. And when I'm just thinking about what's good for me, then I'm just going to do what's good for me, and you just do what's good for you. The thought is somehow that will all work out, and it leads to so much brokenness that we are trying to have be, or we're trying to allow the Lord to undo within us because this has certainly affected the church. This is why I'm concerned that we talk 
so much about a personal relationship with God, and we don't see that we're always in a communal relationship with God. That Jesus, God didn't start relationships with individuals for the sake of individuals, but always there was a community aspect that he was doing as individuals come together and form a tightly knitted community. The answer to this from a Christian perspective is my life is not my own. This is the Christian vision of life. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you must what? You must lose your life. And so that butts up against this individualistic ethic of how we go about choice making within our world. And we begin to allow the Holy Spirit to undo what has been done, uh, what has, we have been taught. So those are a couple of wrong ethics, the right ethic in two words, Jesus' ethic is simply sacrificial love. And we're going to unpack this a bit more. This is faithfulness over perceived effectiveness. Jesus who sacrificed and who gave. I'm reading a book by Miroslav Volf, and he reflects on what Luke Tim Johnson writes in his book called The Real Jesus. He says, All four Gospels, these are the narratives of the account of Jesus, all four Gospels also agree that discipleship is to follow the same messianic pattern of Jesus, the suffering servant that we um, come to understand. They do not emphasize the performance of certain deeds or the learning of certain doctrines. Listen, they insist on living according to the same pattern of life and death shown by Jesus. Jesus' life, how he lived, and his death provide the means for our ethical foray into the world. If we are to know the ways in which to live, we have to start with how we have been saved. We have been saved by courageous and self-sacrificial generosity. Listen, the passion of Jesus, that means like his last week towards the cross, and his resurrection do not just grant us access into the far-off kingdom, but these form the very ethos of the Christian community's day-by-day choice-making in the world into which heaven is breaking into. As we talked about last week, that half story of I'm broken and God saved me can leave us with a wrong anticipation about what this is all about. And we might, and it is common, in that truncated gospel orientation, be tempted to receive grace via the cross, but then continue living an unrepentant life. Wolf says in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, this quote just grabbed me, to claim the comfort of the crucified Jesus, like being forgiven, while rejecting his way, is to advocate not only cheap grace, but a deceitful ideology. So that is where we begin our ethical discussion. It is based upon the way of Jesus' life and his death. And that frames 
the whole ethical conversation. And we're going to reflect on some of Jesus' words as we see this, and also on the words of Paul, um, a brilliant theologian, church planner in the first century, who really helped us to make sense of some of what God was doing uh, through Jesus. So Paul um, would write letters to churches that he had interacted with, and he had planted and started, and Paul had a very complex relationship with the church in Corinth. He planted the church in Corinth, and Corinth was a city of like crazy immorality and debauchery, and it was highly sexualized, and the church was trying to figure all this out, and they were messed up, and they were broken. And so Paul's interest, obviously, was to help them on their moral journey, but I want you to hear and to see again how Paul came to frame the undergirding of his moral vision with them. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, he's reflecting on when he first came to them. He said, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything, let's read it together, except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. He says, I came to you with this vision of Christ and him crucified. Later, he gets into the ethical ramifications, but that's the foundation. Paul, also writing to the church in Rome, Church in Rome was probably many pockets of house churches, some of them who weren't interacting very much together. And his vision was that in Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire, that there would be a flourishing community that would stand in stark contrast to the lies that the Roman Empire was weaving and, and enforcing upon their world through oppression. He says to the church in Rome, again, let's the foundation of our ethical conversation. He says, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. The next sentence, let's read it together. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. We were joined to him in his death. That his death and orienting ourselves towards that way of living in the world is the means to us walking out the how in our world. This new life is summed up by Jesus in John 14, 6, as recorded by one of his closest disciples, John. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, the life. Let's read the last part together. No one can come to the Father except through me. This morning we're going to explore the ethical ramifications of the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, and the life of Jesus. Looking through the lens of his crucifixion and his resurrection, what does this mean? How then shall we live 
is the question that we are asking. And the foundation, the means of our salvation or redemption, forgiveness, become the very means of us thinking about interacting with the world. Some of it will be a great reminder for us. And some of us might have some things to unlearn as we see the way of Jesus. So first of all, we will look at the way. Any ethical conversation has to begin with the beginning and the end in mind. And in between the beginning and the end is the way that you get there. Jesus, at the end, said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, as recorded in Revelation. Let's read this together. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. As I mentioned, Colossians says that Jesus was present at the creation of the world at the very beginning. And as he was present at the creation of the world, the Garden of Eden, we can make this observation about what God created. The Garden of Eden was not specifically ethnic, nor was it specifically Jewish. In Genesis 12, the Jewish people through Abraham come into the picture. But at the beginning, there was no ethnicity or race. These things that are common to us when we look at the beginning, we see that um, that is not the way it was. So when we look back at the beginning, we begin to understand God's intention. And then looking upon the end, we see God creating a new heaven and earth. And Philippians 2 tells us that in the end, every tribe and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That at the beginning, it's not about ethnicity or nation. And at the end, it's not about ethnicity or nation. It's about Jesus transcending it all. We get the sense as we look at the way of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. The way, the ark of Jesus, we get the sense that he is returning us to his creative order that we find at the beginning. And the beginning and the end of the gospel story is broad across and over nations, tongues, tribes, and people. So in terms of our ethical conversation of the way in which we live for the Christ follower, our manner and our way means living in such a way that is broader than just unto ourselves or just our culture. It is a posture and activity that lives for and into the universal cosmic, transnational, transcultural kingdom of God. That is what frames our first comprehension and anticipation about what God is doing. Paul discovered this. Paul, who was a Jew of the Jews, who was living for the perpetuation of the Jewish people, and then he was confronted on his, the road to Damascus by Jesus himself. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And through his beginning of understanding of how Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the scriptures, he wrote his first letter that we have recorded to the people in Galatians. And I'd like for us to read this out loud with some gusto as we understand the broad way of Jesus. Ready? Go. For you are all children of God. Wait, I said with some gusto. 
Ready? Go. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave, free, male, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. The promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 is that all nations of the earth will be blessed by you through your seed, through your offspring. And so the Jewish tradition always anticipated that there would be this unfolding and all of creation and all of humanity would benefit. Paul says the new clothes. He had to put on the new clothes. It's a different way of thinking about the world. The new clothes require us to have an allegiance to the greater kingdom and the true King Jesus. As I mentioned after worship, those phrases of Lord and King were commonly used and attributed to the power and the promises of Caesar and the early church recognizing that there was a socio-political reality to what Jesus was doing began to use those words in direct defiance to the promises of the empire that were leading to nothingness and more violence and oppression. The transcultural and transnational hope of Jesus frames our expectation. So our ethical conversation, as we think about how then shall we live, must begin by assuming that our Christian ethics might be reflected by our culture, but that their legitimacy is beyond and above our culture's ethics. In other words, to discern right from wrong cannot begin with an assumption that our culture is doing a good job. But upon reflecting on Jesus' ethics, we might find some ethical pearls within our culture. This is where it begins. This is the way of Jesus. Also, for any Christ follower who says Jesus is king, I don't know how you can be a Christian without saying Jesus is king, this presumes that a unilateral unwaving support of its own nation and culture above any others will result in transgressing the universal ethics of the kingdom. How we treat the refugee, how we treat the immigrant, how we think about war or retribution are all held into account by this distinct moral vision that does not reside in one nation or culture alone, but is universal in application and is the universal cosmic hope of the kingdom. The way of Jesus will always press us to think and act more broadly than the perceived safety of our culture or preference of our culture because we are living according to the beginning and the end. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. Any ethical conversation has to start there, and if it doesn't recognize that first, it will transgress itself and contradict itself because it does not reside in one culture or nation. That's exactly what Jesus came to undo. Secondly, Jesus says, I'm the truth. The Apostle John writes 
in a letter to the churches. He says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father. They are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. John is saying there's things, fleeting desires and pleasures, they're fading away. In the present, these things seem so real. It seems like what is really going on, getting, having, achieving. But we must remember and recall that our ethical conversation is beginning with the life and death of Jesus, particularly his death on the cross. But even in his life, he chose to not have or acquire possessions or power. He didn't bring his kingdom in via materialism, but rather he stayed as someone who had no home. He said, when somebody wanted to follow him, I want to follow you. He said, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He was living in the truth of what was those things that feel like they're so important or not. John is exhorting us not to follow those things, but to follow what is from the Father. Jesus' life and his death teaches us that truthfulness is paramount to the Christian life. You see, Jesus didn't save us via some illusory story. The cross of Jesus is not some grand parable or allegory that motivates us to think a little bit differently about the world or to applaud somebody that was ready to die, but in fiction. Rather, it is Jesus himself going into what was really going on, the halls of the power of the empire, and living out an ethic that could not be overwhelmed by evil or injustice. The Gospels tell a true and visceral story. They give a profound, gritty account of the Son of God, the Holy One's way of dealing with the fickle, the spitting, and duplicitous nature of the world by being true and being the truth. Jesus' walk to the cross teaches us first that our ethics begin or end with truthfulness. Now, truthfulness is, in part, not lying, but it is more than that. It is living according to what is really going on. Scriptures frame that for us. They tell us what's really going on. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that your fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. In our Western context, we've diminished the reality of the spiritual world and elevated the sense of the natural world and our rationality, and we think that's really going on. But Scripture reinterprets our culture. Our culture doesn't reinterpret Scripture. Jesus, before Pilate, lived what was really going on, an oppressive empire making promises, peace that they could not fulfill. That's what all empires do. Rome promised that our oppression, yes, we're conquering you now, but it will bring about good. And their crucifixions, which were not just Jesus, but were common 
as a way to enforce their, the rule and law of Rome were an irony they could not come overcome. This brutal death for peace, violence for peace, the promises of Rome live on. And Jesus walked right through that. Rome had deceived herself in that it carried the truth and could suppress what truth was. All empires think they carry the truth. And Jesus walked right through that to the cross. And evil thought it had won. And he died on the cross after hanging. And then he was buried. And he was raised to life again, showing that the kingdom of God is breaking forth into humanity. And it doesn't come through the means of violence or oppression, but from the very means that Jesus talked about. Through peace and through love and sacrificial love. In a world that we live in that twists truth for its own end and its own goal, the Christian lives according to the truth of Jesus and smiles through the chaotic lying and deception of the world. We don't manipulate, we don't lie, even when faced with death. We are true to the kingdom that is breaking forth. God knows what is really going on. And Jesus lived that by dying so that the seed of curse and death could be defeated, so that the illusions of the world might be shattered. Stanley Hauerwas says about this, I love this quote. I encourage you to write it down or take a picture. The distance between how we live and what we know to be true is painful and tempts us to change the truth rather than change our lives. The distance between how we live and what we know to be true is painful and tempts us to change the truth rather than change our lives. For the Christian, we begin an ethical conversation by first acknowledging what is really going on. Until we, over and over again, allow, us, allow God to lead us according to the truth of the revealed Son, Jesus, we will not live rightly. We won't even ask the right questions. And if you don't ask the right questions, you'll never come to the right answer. you always get the wrong answer. Jesus shows us what is really going on. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. And then he says, I'm the life. Let's imagine for a moment Jesus in the Holy Trinity existing beyond our sense of reality. And our sense of the Trinity is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all in authority and also submitted to one another. And the relationship that is happening through there is powerful. The pattern that Jesus shows when he comes on earth, he shows us over and over again as a pattern of life. By submitting to the will of the Father, so he would bring glory to the Father. Jesus, coming in the flesh and being willing to walk out the truth even unto death and through death shows us that the way of life is the way of submitting and following and not leading. When we come to know that God's ordering in our lives is not for our harm, but is for life and flourishing, we come to think a bit differently about submitting to him. We don't like that word submitting. But Jesus said, let's read this out loud. Ready, go. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. This is Jesus' heart for us. 
And Jesus is the prototype for us of human flourishing as he was submitted to the will of the Father. All of the commands of Scripture are about life. Tyson and Grizzle, in the book, they, they go right after what they call the triad or the trinity of idolatry within our culture. They write, sex, money, and power are the idolatrous trinity that defines our culture's ethical vision, where these good gifts of God have been deeply distorted. We have to have an alternative ethical vision that responds differently to and thereby retrains our culture's core principles. The creative minority that we're becoming as we live out sex, power, and money differently is beginning to retrain and reframe how we think about the world. And people, as they watch us, will begin to see, oh, that's what's going on. God intends that we would live flourishing and healthy lives as opposed to the chaos and dysfunction and brokenness through power, sex, and money in our culture. For the Christian, we work out our ethics around sex, money, and power from a place of submission to what the scriptures say and the tradition of the church. Again, we look at Jesus, his way of serving and not getting. Does that change our sexual ethic? Absolutely. Our sexual ethic is I do what I want to do, and it's nobody's business as, and except for mine, as long as I don't hurt anybody. The, as long as I don't hurt anybody, is noble in its intention, and please don't rape other people, but you are hurting other people every time you walk out of, you, you have sex or engage with sexual activity outside the covenant bond of marriage between a man and a woman. That is what is true, and that leads to flourishing within the world. It leads to the perpetuation of family and health and goodness and loyalty to one another. It provides a firm foundation for culture or society to build this life upon. But anything else deceives and distorts and ultimately breaks. How about money? Money too. I mean, man, preacher talks about money. We just start to... We'll never come back to this... Like, all right, Mr. Rooster, why don't you just buck, 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 right, right your way out of here. <laughs> I, don't, I hope that you wouldn't. But you see, Jesus says he talks about money a lot because he understands that this is an idolatry within, that, that our sense of control about money is making promises that it can never measure up to. That our security is never in money itself. And so the invitation in the, in the tradition of scriptures is to open our hands and to give sacrificially and then what becomes joyfully and generously and to see that we were never an owner. We are just a steward. This is the way of Jesus, his teaching, and then ultimately his life of extravagant generation, generosity or power. Jesus didn't grasp at power. He didn't rally a political force. He didn't, and then, this is my impersonation of our culture. And then four years later, the other people are like, oh, and the Christian is ambivalent. The Christian is ambivalent 
Because we are living according to the kingdom that never, ever, ever ends. And we do not become deceived by the power structures of the world that seek to suck us in and then to create tyranny in our lives. How many Christians are in tyranny before the TV as they watch things go in the way that they shouldn't? And there's angst and there's anxiety. And this is not what Jesus intended. He came to break all of those idols. He came to break all of those chains, to release the captives. So even to the point of death, we would have no fear. And this describes, we said a couple weeks ago, the first 300 years of the church and the significant influence that the early church had because people were living according to the way of Jesus, not just holding on for heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You may recall the horrible violence that ISIS brought into the world. 2015 was especially prevalent when Christians were being beheaded and killed in other awful ways. And obviously the world took notice. And what I'm so glad is that there were those in the church that took notice too, but not in the way that we might naturally want to take notice. And the reaction wasn't the way that we might want to in terms of our sense of rights, but rather a response that was the way of Jesus. ISIS would call Christians the people of the cross that they were after. And so in response, this is a letter written from the people of the cross. We're going to watch this. I encourage you to experience it and feel it, even if it's uncomfortable. This is the way of Jesus, the power of Jesus, that changes how we think about our response in the world. Then we'll reflect on a few application questions, and Devin and the team will lead us in a song in just a moment. The cross of Jesus and the way of the people of the cross of Jesus are the hope of the world. We have a couple of questions for us to reflect on and to feel. The reality is that we want this and yet we resist it. And I think of some who have served in the Middle East and they've seen the other side of that and how difficult. It's not abstract, it's not over there, it's personal. But the way of Jesus even comes to that and frames and teaches the only way of hope for this broken world that God is renewing. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some questions, and we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on them before we sing together. First question is this. The transnational way of Jesus. Be truthful with yourself. When you think of foreigners, are you afraid of losing what is yours? The way of Jesus calls us into a different way of conceiving of the world. Second question, the truth of Jesus. What are some of the lies our culture tells us that you believed 
and lived according to. Would you allow Jesus by his spirit to show you so that you can repent and move according to what is really going on? The unfolding kingdom with King Jesus at the top, not our success or achievement. And finally, the life of Jesus. In what way are you not submitted with your sex, your money, or your power? Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. And just as Jesus brought life by submission to the Father, so we too, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so, will find life when we live according to following and not leading our own life. I'm going to leave these questions up. We can reflect for a couple of moments, and then Devin will lead us in some singing. And as we sing, I invite you to sing from the point of view of those ISIS fighters who, upon their turn to Jesus, receive all the inheritance that we have received so generously and freely. Sing it from that point of view and experience the goodness of the way of Jesus.